Hey friends, welcome to the Victor Marks Podcast with Victor Marks, founder of All Things Possible Ministries. Welcome to the show where we bring you real conversations faced with life's hard truths, stories of redemption, and the latest from the front lines. Whether you're on the road, getting your day started, or finally settling in, we've got an exciting new episode planned for you. So let's dive in to today's show. Welcome to another edition of the Victor Marks Show. I'm your host, Victor Marks. I am excited to have our guest on today. I'm going to read a little bit of her bio. It's pretty amazing. Holly McKay, she is a, an Australian-American foreign policy expert and war crimes investigator. For over 14 years, she's worked for Fox News Digital as an investigative journalist and really reported extensively from war zones in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, Africa, and others. Now, during this time, Holly uncovered mass sex slavery that was perpetrated by ISIS, hence one of the reasons why we have her on the program today. And uh, largely, we all know it's been against the Yazidi people. Uh, through her travels, Holly's been interviewed uh, by many Afghan government officials. She has interviewed. And uh, uh, security forces, she actually maintains a permanent press pass to the United Nations and serves on the Honorary and Advisory Board of Emergency, a humanitarian nonprofit organization that provides free medical treatment to victims of war. And earlier this year, Holly published a historical book titled Only Cry for the Living, which chronicles the stories of many whom Holly has encountered while covering the war with ISIS. Holly, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that we were able to book you. And um, uh, I'm in a very relaxed atmosphere because I'm actually on R and R out here in Hawaii. I don't have the lucky no you. Today. I love Hawaii. <laughs> Let me ask you this: with all your travels, when you go into a hot zone and you get back, did it take you a while to adjust to like normal living, going to the grocery market? seeing rows of cereal boxes and all that? Yeah, the adjustment period has always been really difficult for me. And it yeah. just is this yeah. sort of idea of suddenly you're walking down the street and um, things aren't a threat or there are so many choices or you have to deal with day-to-day life, the bills and the this and the that. And and when you're in a conflict zone, all those things don't matter. And you're it's sort of a, a very simple way of thinking. Yes. Uh I wish people like you would sit on boards of think tanks that determine policy because, you know, I tell the story of we sat on one time at a think tank in DC and I just shared a few stories that they found incredulous. Actually, one person said, I don't believe you. Mm. And I thought, how sad because you're, you're defining and making policy for, you know, the U.S. government. And I think that's how I connected with you, uh, seeing some of your social media posts. And I went, wow, you don't find too many young ladies who have both the courage and the heart to do what you've done. And uh, what what about your parents? Uh, did they get worse? Yeah, I see the smile. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think it was very difficult for them. And I don't know that, you know, even now it's still quite difficult. My mother, I can't 
really read my book. She just, she can't do it. Um, but my dad, on the other hand, I'm very close with my father. And so it, it took a while. And often, initially, when I was telling them I was going to these places, they would become so worried sick that I was actually worried for them, right? Um, which wasn't useful for any of us. Right. So I ended up sort of shielding them from a lot of the trips. So I would kind of go overseas and I would not really tell them until I came back or I would sort of say that I was in Europe when I was in uh, Yemen um, just to kind of protect them a little bit. And and then after a while, I think, especially my dad um, really just started to, it was really the children for him. And he sort of started to see a lot of the work I was doing with burn victims and children that had lost limbs. And I think that's sort of when he really saw the value of my work um, in that sense. And and he was sort of, you know, he even asked a few times, what would it be like if I came to Iraq? And, and so there was definite curiosity there. My mother is a kindergarten teacher. So she, you know, was a deeply creative, wonderful woman, but she just can't sort of stomach, I guess, the concept of war. And, and I've had to learn to accept that that's, you know, she's probably not going to be my target audience for things, but, but they've definitely, um, they've come a long way themselves in, in terms of accepting what I do and understanding it, uh, to a, a broader level and really seeing that, that telling the stories do matter. And, and so they've been a great support in that. Now, since we're talking personal family, uh, I'll, I'll continue that vein. You can answer it if you like or say, no, thank you, sir. I'll find it. open book. <laughs> okay. So relationship-wise, are you in a relationship? Have you found it hard to maintain or have relationships with the work that you do? Yes, I am not in a relationship, and I will definitely say it's something I've – I've had to think about a lot um, because it has been really hard. You know, I'm 35 now. When you're in your 20s, for me, you know, I was just always such an independent spirit and still a very independent spirit. So traveling and and the idea of sort of being sort of trapped in one place or, or settled, that was definitely not for me. And I think when you're in your 20s too, you just think everything eventually is going to fall into place. It's going to fall into place. And then as I sort of got more into my 30s and I definitely, you know, met some very special people uh, along the way, but it, it, it never worked out. And I think it was a multitude of reasons for those. And I think that the traveling does scare a lot of men. I, you know, I think a lot of men sort of viewed it as, as them not being able to be the protector or right. guys sort of really wanted to be able to travel and, and do things and work in dangerous places, but they wanted somebody that could stay home and take care of the kids and take care of the house. And that's obviously not um, who I am. So that's been, it's been really difficult in that sense. And then I think I'm always leaving tomorrow is sort of the joke. And I, and I, I'm very nomadic in my life. Um, I'm literally in a different place every week and yeah, it's sort of, you're always leaving tomorrow. So, you know, it definitely has been hard and it's something I've had to sort of think about and, and what compromises that I've been willing to make. And I've definitely seen women and mothers continue to do this work. Um, and it really is finding that sort of supportive partner that is going to be accepting and embracing, um, of, of that. And that just, it hasn't quite fallen into my path yet, but I, I hope. You know, thanks for sharing that because I, you know, we have team members who are females, single, who have been in the war zones and done the humanitarian work with us. And, and I've met a lot and there's always that longing for relationship and yet the desire and passion to do what they feel called to do. Yeah. And 
I, I always want to give hope and encouragement that uh, single people will find the right person, uh, you know, without compromise, then continue yeah. to do. My wife and I are, I think, good examples of that because we have a, another house in Iraq. We've been in and out of the region so many times and other places, but she's traveled with me to, I mean, Syria, to Kemp al-Hall, you know, we've had to hide from Assad's men, mm. ISIS in Iraq. We've brought children to our house who were, their parents were just killed by ISIS. Mm. And my wife gave me the, just the sweetest compliment the other day. We were driving actually here in Hawaii and she just put her arm on me and said, I, I love our life together. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And, and I, and I wish that for everyone, you included, because the work that you do is so important. Um, Really in America, we live in a bubble and most people have to take it in little pieces. And as you know, the media, you know, the cycle, Whatever's going on only gets a few minutes and then whatever's next. And people really aren't able to get a really good understanding, a truthful understanding. Mm-hmm. But you you help provide that. Before we go any further, what what is some ways people can track and follow you? So I obviously use my social media, my Instagram and is Holly S McKay, H O L L I E S M C K A Y. And right now, um, you know, I was at Fox for many, many years and I decided to go on my own path earlier this year, just because I, I didn't want to be part of the media vacuum anymore in the sense that I felt that no matter where you looked in a media sense, there was an agenda, there was, um, just a a lack of interest, honestly, in wanting original content anymore. And that, you know, I wasn't put on this planet to aggregate a story essentially. So I'm very much a field reporter. So I figured that the best way for me to, again, achieve that calling is to be able to, to have that, that really independence and, and being kind of the free spirit I was, I didn't want to be trapped in an office. I didn't want to be trapped in New York city. I wanted to be able to do things on my own agenda. It has been tough. I'm not going to lie. It's, it has been tough even as someone independent trying to, you know, get the funding for a certain trip or to even just get a lot of stuff published or, or even, that interest. I just think we, we still suck in this bubble and it's, it's a shame to me because there are just so many stories that need to be told. So um, I'm kind of in the process right now of developing a little bit of my own platform um, that I can be hopefully really highlight human rights issues. And, and what I want to be able to do is, is educate people in a way that they're not going to get through the media and, and, you know, in a variety of different topics, I want people to understand what China is doing in Tibet. I want people to understand what the Assad regime is doing in Syria. And I want them to understand it from a very micro level. But I think to the next point, it's important to be aware, but people always want to know, well, what can I do to help? And and different issues are going to resonate with different people. Right. So I sort of want to be able to not only highlight these issues, but I want to be able to sort of give people concrete steps that they can be part of a solution. So I'm sort of working um, in developing a platform myself for that because I feel that I can only rely on myself to get the word out and that, you know, when you're trying to rely on other corporate entities, you're, you're always going to be... I guess, 
altered to some degree and and that's definitely not what I want. So it's a work in progress. (laughs) You know what? It's exciting and it it speaks to your character and courage to go, you know, I I want to continue doing what I'm doing without compromise. I Ivory Hecker came out. She's a reporter for Fox. Did you hear about that? I read a headline. Of, this was a, about sort of coming out with uh, Project Veritas, right? Correct. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't read the story, but I did see it. Well, I, I think it's interesting that another young lady uh, has the courage to step up and go, you know, it's enough. Things that matter are being censored even by, you know, the conservative side because uh, most people talk about the left censoring. You know, folks like us that are out there doing humanitarian work in places, we just want the truth told. We want mm-hmm. people to be able to think for themselves and follow the passions that are big enough for their heart. Now, when you went to the Middle East for the first time or you were going to places where there was war, where there was death, what really impacted you? I mean, what broke your and biblical sack, so to speak, of just like, oh my gosh, this is really real and it's more than I thought it would be. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember walking, you know, I remember the first time I ever went to a refugee camp. And for people that have never been to a refugee camp, if you can go at some point in your life, I just think it gives you this sort of very deep visual understanding of of a world that that we're so lucky to not you know, be privy to here in the United States. Yeah. Just sort of seeing just the mass of of children and, and the confusion, I think over why that they were even there and why they'd been driven from their homes. And I remember some of the questions that I was first asking the parents and, and one that I still ask a lot today is how do you explain that to a child? Mm -hmm. How do you explain the reasons that they were forced you know, to run from their home one day or that it was their neighbor that they'd known for years that they grew up with, that they shared meals with. And suddenly it was that same neighbor that had turned their guns on them. Now, how do you explain that to a child? And I think that it was always something that was just incredibly heartbreaking for me. But what you would see is these children who were just, who were so full of life and they were often, you know, especially in the beginning with, in terms of the ISIS conflict and this changed throughout the course, but in the beginning, the children were still playing on the logs and they were still, you know, singing songs and, and whatnot. And I just thought, you know, they're going to come to a point sometime where they realize how unfair this all is and that this isn't summer camp that's going away. And so I think for me, it was just, it's heartbreaking to see, see that childhood essentially ripped away in such a way. And, and I think that is, um, that is probably the saddest aspect of war is losing a childhood. I tell people the ones who suffer the most and pay the biggest price are children mm-hmm. when it comes time for war. And, you know, we work in uh, camps and um, we were overwhelmed when we saw just the mass number of children, right? My wife and I and team, we were stunned. And we went there to help with trauma relief. Um, mm-hmm. So we developed what's called the lion and lamb, little stuffed toys. So tactile, very comforting. And they have music in them, in whether it's Arabic or Kurdish or whatnot. And in their languages, their prayers uh, to God, from God, to calm their heart, to try to bring a sense of understanding and redemption in really what is complete chaos. 
People listening and watching right now, when you, when Holly says people being run from their homes, most people are going to just have this imagination of poor, destitute people who probably didn't have anything. And then they just moved to maybe a little bit less. But that's not the truth. These are families like ours here in the U.S., families like in Australia or Britain, where I mean, doctors, lawyers, scientists, school teachers, uh, car mechanics, carpenters, normal people with homes, cars that just absolutely got ransacked. Uh, isn't that hard for people to understand? Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's there's definitely and this is with the role of the media. There is a sort of disconnect, I think, that comes in. But when you are in these places and you spend time with these families, you really do see that. They're, they're not much different, you know, their lives, may, they may be living in a different country, but at the end of the day, they're, they're working, they're trying to provide for their families, they're trying to basically just get by, and when you lose everything you own, um, and you know that there's going to be no accountability, really, and there's going to be no recourse for justice, and that nothing that these, you know, terrorists or whoever the enemy may be done to you will probably ever face much of a consequence, I mean, that's got to be tough, it's just got to be tough. And the resiliency of what I see in people, um, the willingness to rebuild their lives, often over and over again, I think that is just, it's hugely remarkable to me because I, I put myself in their shoes and I think, I don't know that I would be able to to do that. You know, I don't know that I would be able to have that will to sort of want to go back and, and rebuild everything. And I think that um, those that choose to do that, it's, it's truly remarkable. And then, of course, there are a subset of people that are, are so scared that if they go and do that, it's it's only going to be taken from them again. And of course that creates another problem of sort of a camp dependency in it. And it's not because they want to be at the camp. It's because that the alternative is, is terrifying. And, and I think we need to sort of sympathize and empathize with that experience to a big degree as well. That's so true. We, we recently uh, sat on with a, a young girl that we had helped. Uh, she lost her eye and we provided surgeries for her. Uh, this was out of Mosul. And so we, we, we were doing follow-up. So we sat down and, you know, one, I was shocked on how much she had grown up. Uh, and you talk about resiliency. That's such a key word where many, many, if not most of uh, our younger generation here in America lack resiliency. Uh, and, and maybe it's just because they haven't had to really live in hardship or they've been protected or gotten what they want, whatever the reasons, it's a danger to a country and it's a danger to a person's mental health when they really don't have a level of resiliency. They get upset, they scream for nothing, for things that don't even matter. They're fighting false causes. And I think about this young girl, Aisha, and she had a patch over her right eye and we actually interviewed her and we'll be sharing that with our listeners and viewers uh, through our social media. But I said, uh, Aisha, well, let me see your eye. And she was nervous. She pulled the patch up and there was just a hole there, just a big black hole. And I said, where's your eyeball? We, we gave you an eye. She said, she was so embarrassed. She goes, it fell out one day and broke, you know, it was cracked because of prosthetic. She goes, I can't wear it. I said, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't y'all contact us? And, uh, but she was so 
embarrassed to say, you already had provided for us. So, you know, we laughed. I said, Aisha, we can get you another eyeball. Come on. You know, yeah. look. But that family and then her, you know, I, I asked her, I said, Aisha, what do you want to do with your life? Because she's 17 right now. And she said, I'd love to be a lawyer. Mm. And I said, you know what? You finish your primary studies and we'll, we'll put you through university. So it's, it's not, you know, although it's the world to them, for organizations like us that are smaller, but I would say with high integrity funding, because we, we don't take any weird money. It's just people who give, mostly small gifts. We have such a sense of uh, accountability to really make those monies go a long way. I'll give you another story. We were in Baghdad uh, visiting with a girl who had lost her leg because it was shot and we provided a prosthetic. And, you know, she's so funny. She's like eight, I think, right now. And she came in. Her prosthetic, she's grown since we gave it to her, so it doesn't fit. And I said, you know, we'll get you a, a new one. I said, there are some that they're advanced where you can run with them, you know, the, the runner's prosthetic. And and she goes, I can run with mine just like this. And, and, and she's such a tough little girl with a great smile. But they're living in squalor. Mm. And the, the dad works next to a brick-making company, and his forms were burned from working there. And I said, what would it take to get you a house? And long story short, we can build them a house with property for $10,000. It's amazing. It would change, right, the future for this family. And one lady, we had shared this, one lady on social media contacted office and said, I had a dream last night about this little girl and her family, and I feel like God wants me to give $10,000. And mm. I, I don't think this woman was wealthy, but uh, she she took out of her need and gave. So we'll be able to provide that house. That's, I mean, in your life and world and kids you've helped, it doesn't take a lot to make a big difference, does it, Holly? It doesn't. And I really believe I'm someone, and this is why in my work, I really try to highlight those individual stories because I think when we look at the huge picture and all the statistics and just the large number of people that need help, it can be very overwhelming. And you can sort of feel yes. like, well, I can't, I can't do anything to help uh, half a million you know, children out of school, but you can do something to help that one child out of school. And I think when we sort of scale it back and take it in, in a micro sense, um, there is a lot we could all do. With, and, and I think that is really the key to, to change in a lot of these places is having that individual case, individual child, individual person that, that we can all somehow support in a cause or a place that resonates with us. And I, I believe in really starting in that micro level in order to fix the, the big picture. Well, you're out there doing it. And I think it's going to be a fun relationship that ATP can have with Holly. Yeah. You know what? We, we love to give you a platform and a, uh, to share your voice, real stories, and Thank you. I'd love that. I, I would love to be able to uh, have you be an ambassador for us out there where you contact us and say, hey, there's a need with this child. Or could we get yeah. some wine and lamb to this area? It would make a big difference. 
I'd love to be involved. Yeah. And I would love to come, you know, on the field sometime and, and do a story on the work that you and your wife are doing as well. I think that's also an important story that I can tell from my lens. Well, we, we, we'd love to have you do that. Um, I'm looking at the time. This always goes so fast with fascinating guests like you. And, and I hope they've been uh, young women little girls leaned up to the radio or the podcast or watching this on YouTube going, that sounds so exciting. And you've motivated her uh, because we, we love stories of people doing unique things uh, that would challenge others and even it be big enough for their hearts to inspire them. And I think you definitely have done that today, but can we do one more program one more show with you for people to understand who you are and what you do and to hear some of the stories that have impacted you. Absolutely. I would uh, be honored to come back and, and talk about some of the work and, and some of the future work. So I have a couple of interesting trips coming up as well that I would love to talk about. Great. Well, t- we will share these with our listeners tomorrow. Well, it's time to wrap up today, but I'll be back again tomorrow. We'll hear more from Holly McKay, but in the meantime, if you want to learn more about her and her work and what she does, you can check her out at hollymckay.com. That's hollymckay.com. I'm going to spell it H-O-L-L-I-E-M-C-K-A-Y.com. From there, you can also order her latest book, Only Cry for the Living, uh, which is it's an Amazon bestseller. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, do it for the glory of God, full throttle. I'll go get it done. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. We'd love to stay connected with you and invite you to the conversation beyond this podcast. You can check out more of the work we're doing around the world at victormarks.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all linked in the show notes. Be sure to drop us a comment in the review section if today's show has impacted you in any way or if there's anything you'd like to hear more of. We're always encouraged to hear from you. Thanks for spending your time with us. Until next time.